People magazine once published a poll that surveyed attitudes toward various sins. Readers would quantify the guilt that they felt after committing different acts. Numbers were tabulated, and then each of the sins was given a sin coefficient or a syndex. One meant blameless, ten meant guilty to the max. Murder was considered the worst of all sins. It had a syndex of 9.84. Rape was next at 9.77. Other sinister sins included child abuse, 9.59, drug dealing, 8.83, adultery, 7.63. On the other end of the sin spectrum, sins that were considered more benign were selfishness, 4.92, gossip, 4.1, jealousy, 4.08, and lust, just 3.65. According to the poll, vice and violence deserved the highest index, where the sins of the heart came in lower. Yet in tonight's chapters, we're going to discover that God looks at sin differently than we do. God has his own sin decks. In Romans chapter 1, Paul analyzed the hideous sins of the heathen. And while he did, most of us nodded in approval as Paul sort of pecked away at their perversity. Some of us might have left last week feeling a little smug, a little morally superior, Paul senses our spiritual snobbishness. He realizes that our sin may be more sophisticated, our wickedness more well-bred, but we're just as guilty. For tonight, he's going to show us that respectable sinners are just as culpable as reprobate sinners. In the book of Romans, Paul sets up court. God is judge, and Paul is the prosecutor. In chapter 1, the heathen gets sentenced. In chapter 2, it's the hypocrite's turn. In chapter 3, the Hebrew and then all humanity are put on trial. Paul's point is this. Both the unrighteous and the self-righteous end up guilty as charged. Romans chapter 2 begins. Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge... For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. A woman was racing to catch her flight. She had no time for lunch. So she grabbed a pack of cookies on her way to the airplane. She was sitting in the aisle seat. There was a man sitting up against the window. There was an empty seat in between. When the plane took off, she reached over into the empty seat. And she opened up the packages of cookies. She ate one. But to her shock, the man sitting against the window, he reached over, grabbed one of the cookies, and he ate one. She thought, how dare that man eat my cookies? A few minutes later, she ate another cookie. He, in turn, ate a cookie. She ate one. He ate one. Finally, there was just one cookie left. The man reached for it broke it in two, and then gave half of it to the lady. She was just furious. How dare him? Well, as they were exiting the plane, she was rummaging through her purse. 
looking for the claim ticket for her baggage. But guess what she found? Her cookies. <laughs> the whole time she was condemning the man for eating her cookies, she was guilty of the exact same crime. Hey, Paul says to the hypocrite in all of us, who are you to judge another when you practice the same things? You know, in chapter 1, Paul took us on a tour of Skid Rome. The street is lit with neon signs. It's littered with broken glass. Police sirens scream in the night. Windows and doors are screened with burglar bars. Prostitutes walk the street while derelicts line the gutter. Skid Rome is an awful place to be. But you know, in chapter 2, we realize that we all live a little closer to Skid Rome than we think. For the same sin, the same seed that blooms there lies just under the surface of all of our hearts. You see, the anger that causes you to shout a four-letter word, if nurtured and cultivated, can pull the trigger and end a life. Lust that's allowed to inflame can throw you in bed with your secretary or make you a customer on Skid Row. You see, Paul's point in tonight's chapters is that we have no right to condemn the adulterer unless there's never been lust in our own hearts. You see, 2 Corinthians 7 verse 1 reads, Let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit. Notice that. Both the flesh and the spirit can become filthy. We can get dirty on the inside and the outside, in attitude and in action. You see, the consequences of a spiritual sin may not be as immediate as a sin of the flesh. You, you avoided the risk of AIDS. You kept your family intact. But though the fallout is lesser, the kernel is the same. Before God, the seed and the deed are one. This means don't judge the deed if the seed is growing in your heart. Well, notice three times in verse 1, Paul uses the term judge. The Greek word krino means to condemn or to damn to hell. We should never condemn a person to hell. That's not our call. But you see, not all judgments are wrong. In fact, in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus commands us to make certain judgments. There he tells us, beware of false prophets you will know them by their fruits. We're supposed to judge false prophets. Apparently, it's okay to make judgments for identification, just not condemnation. If you're a dad, imagine a young man. He's on your doorstep. He wants to take your daughter on a date. You look out, and there's beer cans in the bed of his pickup truck. There's a cigar hanging out of his mouth, and there's a Playboy magazine rolled up in his back pocket. It's a dad's job to size this guy up, to make some judgments. You don't need to condemn him. You can even love him. You can even share Jesus with him. <laughs> but don't you dare let your daughter get anywhere near him. You're not being judgmental. You're just being discerning. There is a proper kind of judgment. What Paul is forbidding here in verse 1 is a holier-than-thou attitude. It's the idea that I'm better or I'm more spiritual or I'm more righteous than another person. 
You see, if a self-righteous person truly had his or her eyes on God, they'd realize how far short they fall. So to justify himself in his own eyes, what does he do? He focuses on another person he thinks is worse off than him. Or she compares, she condemns. The goal is to make the other person look bad so that I can look good. It's amazing how harsh I can be with other people and at the same time how lenient I can be on myself. Have you ever noticed that? There's a double standard, isn't there? My rage is always more intense than my repentance. It's been said, faults are like headlights. The other guys, the other car's headlights are always more glaring than your own. Isn't that true? Well, notice verse 2. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. You see, here's one of the reasons God forbids us from making judgments. It's that you or I seldom know the whole story. Things are not always as they seem. Thus, whenever we make a judgment from our limited perspective, we're capable of some huge mistakes. Psalm 19 verse 9 tells us the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. You see, only God sees the entire situation. That's why only God is in a position to make the proper call. When it comes to people, we need to do the loving and we need to let God do the judging. Verse 3 And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Oh my, sometimes we think we're the exception to the rule, don't we? That God will judge everybody but me. At least with me, he'll grate on the curve. Don't be foolish. God is going to judge you in the same manner he judges everyone. He says, or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? And here's a wonderful verse. Remember this verse whenever you share your faith. A person is prone to repent and turn to God when? When they discover how much he loves them. When they realize how gracious and long-suffering and forbearing and good he's been to them. 1 John 4 verse 19 tells us we love him. Why? Because he first loved us. You know, I grew up in a church that tried to scare the hell out of you. That's what our pastor's goal was every week. Fear prompted me to do just enough to try to avoid hell. But you know, it never caused me to want to cling to God. Never did. Since then, I've discovered that love is a far greater motivator. God wants us to serve him because we love him. What causes a desire for God is not the horrors of hell as much as it is his attractiveness and his love and his grace toward us. Don't despise the long-suffering of God. Verse 5, but in accordance with your hardness and your impotent, impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Notice the word translated here, hardness. It's the Greek word sclerosis. We call the hardening of the arteries arteriosclerosis. And this apparently can happen to us spiritually. We can get the hardening of the spiritual arteries. We can get a hard heart. I read in the 1880s, a Wells Fargo clerk figured out a way to steal one silver dollar every day without getting caught. 
he would bring the coins home and he would place them in a trunk up in his attic. This went on year after year after year. Finally, after 30 years of this man taking one more silver dollar and putting it in that attic trunk, one night the boards in his ceiling became so heavy from this trunk full of silver dollars that the boards broke and fell on the man as he was lying in his bed. This is what Paul is saying can happen to us. He says a hard heart is storing up God's wrath until one day the ceiling's going to break and it's all going to come crashing down on you. It says in verse 6, Who will render to each one according to his deeds eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality, but to those who are self-seeking And do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek, but glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Notice here, God's judgments are based on obedience. Not your good intentions. Not favoritism. It's not who you are that matters, it's what you do. Notice, God will render to each man according to his deeds. It doesn't matter who you are. If you're Jew or Greek, it boils down to whether you obey God or not. If you obey God, you can expect glory and honor and peace. If you disobey God, you can expect wrath and tribulation. Notice verse 11, for there is no partiality with God. For as many as have sinned without law will also perish without law. And as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. In other words, God also judges based on opportunity. He judges us based on the light that we've been given. You know, those who have the Bible will be judged according to the Bible. But those without God's word won't be held responsible for what they never received. What that doesn't mean is it doesn't mean that the pygmy in New Zealand, the guy who lives and dies having never heard the word, won't die in his sins and be judged by God. He will. But the judge will be, judgment will be different than the person who lived his whole life going to church and sitting there listening to the gospel and hearing God's word from the week to week and yet ignoring those truths. Each man will be judged by the light that he's received. Notice verse 13. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts, accusing or else excusing them. Now, some people lack access to the Word of God, but that doesn't mean that they're blind to the will of God. God has declared enough of His will to all men to hold all sinners accountable. Here, Paul is instructing us that God has revealed Himself in two ways. Through divine law and through natural law. Verse 15 lists three components to natural law. First is an innate sense of right and wrong. All men have this. All men know that there's a right and there's a wrong. 
Paul calls it the law written in their hearts. Notice second, every man has a conscience. Paul mentions their conscience also bearing witness. And then third, the third component to natural law, he says that all societies develop a moral consensus. You know, what they've agreed on between themselves. It's an agreed upon morality that's formed through reason and logic. Every society, there's a natural law. You know, the founders of America spoke of natural law and inalienable rights. They understood that man was created a moral being and that even without Scripture, all humans possess an innate knowledge of good and evil. It's interesting, the Roman philosopher Plutarch, Plutarch was once asked, who shall govern the governor? Plutarch answered, the law, not written on papyrus rolls or wooden tablets, but his own reason within the soul, which perpetually dwells with him and guards him and never leaves his soul void of leadership. You see, there is a law within every human. And tragically, all men have broken that law. I mean, who has always done what they know to be right in every situation? None of us have. That's why every man needs the gospel. That's why we need to bring people God's word because no one stands on their own. We need the gospel. Notice verse 16. In the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. We will be judged by the opportunities we've received, but one day that judgment will be public and it will be open for all to see. Notice all the secrets of men will be brought into the light of day. In Matthew 10, verse 26, Jesus says, For there is nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. There's no secrets with God. I read of a woman from Lansing, Michigan. She was vacationing in sunny Florida. This woman wanted to do a little nude sunbathing. So she found her secluded spot up on the roof of the hotel. Within a few minutes, though the manager was beside her, insisting that she put her clothes on, she thought no one could see her, but she had actually stretched out on the dining room skylight. Hey, here's a warning. If you go to court with God, your life will be naked and open for all to see. If you want your skeletons and your dirty laundry drug out of the closet, well, then you go ahead. You just go to court with God. Hey, I suggest you settle out of court. I don't want my skeletons and my dirty laundry being drug out into the open. I want to cop a plea. I don't want to go to court. I want to find a way to settle with God out of court. And there's a way. It's called the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ. Verse 17, indeed you are called a Jew and rest or rely on the law and make your boast in God. Now in chapter 1, Paul prosecuted the heathen. Now in chapter 2, he exposes the hypocrite. But in verse 17, it's the Hebrews' turn. In the Old Testament, the Jews were God's chosen people. They had a proud heritage, but they allowed their heritage to go to their head. They assumed that just because they were Jews, they were exempt from God's judgment. In fact, Jewish tradition said that Abraham sat at the gate of hell to keep all Jews out regardless of the life they'd lived. Tripo, a Jewish writer, he, he once said, 
They who are of the seed of Abraham, according to the flesh, shall in any case, even if they be sinners and unbelieving and disobedient towards God, share in the eternal kingdom. In other words, the Hebrews or Jews, they were brimming with false confidence. You see, here's what the Jews had overlooked. The Bible teaches that the greater the privilege, the greater the responsibility. Rather than exempt from judgment because of the enormous blessings that had been given to them, the Jews were due a stricter judgment. Paul is going to set it straight here in chapter 2. He continues to enumerate the advantages of the Jews in verse 18. He says, and they know his will and they approve of the things that are excellent, being instructed out of the law and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. In other words, the Hebrews had been the caretakers of Scripture. Jews wrote the Bible. They read the Bible. They copied the Bible. They studied the Bible. They taught the Bible. They did everything but obey the Bible. The word instructed in verse 18 is the Greek word katecheo, from which we get our English word catechism. It means to teach by repetition. You see, Scripture was drilled into the heads of the Jews. But the problem is that it never penetrated their hearts. Did you know this? It can get in your head, but that doesn't mean it's going to translate to your heart. The Jewish synagogues were full of, of people who knew it up here, but, but they didn't live it. It didn't become heart issues in their life. And those Jewish synagogues were full of the same people who sit in churches today. I know people who are going to miss heaven by 18 inches. The word they know in their head has never worked its way the 18 inches down to their heart. It's tragic. Verse 21. You therefore who teach another, do you teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say, do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You see, the Jews weren't obeying the law, certainly not its intent. But they could ease their conscience by teaching it. Isn't that interesting? We, we can always ease our conscience by talking about something rather than doing it. The joke in college, I, I went to Georgia State to business school, and the joke down at the business school, was that if you couldn't make it in the business world, you could end up a professor in the business college. As the old saying goes, those who can do, those who can't teach. The Jews were zealous teachers, but they were horrible doers. Paul asked them in verse 22, You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You know, it's interesting, 70 years of hard labor in Babylon pretty much cured the Jews of idolatry. The Jews hated idolatry. An idol robbed God of his glory and preeminence. Yet Paul says that the Jews had discovered other ways to rip God off, more subtle ways. And I hope you know we too can rob God. Malachi 3 verse 8 tells us how. It says, will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, in what way have we robbed you? And then he answers, in tithes and offerings. 
You know, the unwillingness to give God a tenth of our income is nothing less than stealing from God. In the Bible, the first fruits, the first tenth of what you would make or what you would grow always belonged to God. It was considered God's possession, so to keep it was stealing from God. Verse 23, you who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, as it is written. And here Paul quotes Isaiah 52, verse 5. You know, God intended for the Jews to be a light to the Gentiles. Instead, though, they became a hindrance. Verse 25, for circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law. But if you are a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Now here again is another assumption that the Jews made. If a man was circumcised, he considered himself to be right with God. In fact, one Jewish scholar wrote, Our rabbis have said that no circumcised man will see hell. The Jewish Midrash, a commentary on, on the Jewish scriptures puts it, God swore to Abraham that no one who was circumcised should be sent to hell. The Jews felt safe and spiritually secure because they were circumcised. Paul reminds them, though, that circumcision is just a symbol. What matters to God is the condition of the heart. And you know, there are Christians today who've made the same mistake. They've substituted symbol for substance. Replica for reality. You know, people think that if they've been baptized, or if they take communion, or if they worship on a certain day, or if they join a specific church, that makes them acceptable to God. Charles Hodge once wrote, Whenever true Christianity declines, there is a tendency to lay undue stress on external rights. In other words, ritual and tradition can become a cover-up for what's truly lacking in the heart. God's form can never replace faith. But faith can take the place of form. Paul says, therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? In other words, if you get it right in the heart, it doesn't matter if you have the symbol, if you have the faith. Faith can, re can replace form. If an uncircumcised, pig-eating, Sabbath-working Gentile loves God and has faith, he ends up more acceptable to God than the orthodox, kosher, religious, circumcised Jew. Pleasing God is about form, faith, not form. It's about heart, not ritual and rules. And will not the physically uncircumcised if he fulfills the law, judge you. He's speaking to the Jews. The uncircumcised will judge you, who even with your written code and circumcision are a transgressor of the law. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. The true Jews, in other words, the true people of God are those who have faith, are those who obey God from the heart. To a Jew, of course, these words were a two-by-four right between the eyes. I mean, Paul rattles them. 
They had put so much confidence in their fleshly circumcision. But Paul tells them that the true people of God are the circumcised of heart. Those who trust and obey. In Deuteronomy 30 verse 6, God had made a promise to Israel. There he says, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart. To love the Lord with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. You see, physical circumcision was never intended to be the end in and of itself. It was merely the symbol of a deeper cut. A cutting away of the sin nature. See, we needed our wings clipped. You know, if you were going to domesticate a duck, you got to clip its wings. Or at the very first hint of winter, what will happen? That duck will fly south. That's why you got to clip its wings. And likewise, we too are prone to fly south on God. The tendencies and the propensities that cause us to want to fly the coop and run from God, they need to be clipped. This is what spiritual circumcision is all about. A genuine child of God, the person that Paul would call a true Jew, has experienced spiritual surgery. We would say he's been born again. The Spirit of God has replaced his calloused heart with a caring heart. Love has replaced lust. You see, being a Christian is not the work of a scalpel. It's the work of the Spirit in our hearts. It's about spiritual circumcision. It's about the cutting away of the flesh, the wrong attitudes, rather than cutting away of the, of the physical skin. Well, that's chapter 2, Romans chapter 3. What advantage then has the Jew or what is the prophet of circumcision? Now, this was the argument you would expect from a Jew who's finished reading chapter 2. If being born a Jew and being circumcised doesn't make you right with God, well, then what, what in the world is the benefit of being Hebrew? Well, Paul answers, much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. Now, the word oracle, it refers to a divinely inspired message. What he's saying is that the advantage of being a Jew was their access to the Scriptures. God's Word spared the Jews pitfalls that were common among the pagan people. There's a great book. It's called None of These Diseases. And in this book, Dr. S.I. McMillan he describes how that many of the Old Testament laws, even some of the dietary laws, how they helped the Jews against various diseases to avoid those diseases. In fact, in the Middle Ages, the bubonic plague, it swept across Europe. And when it did, societies were literally wiped out. That is, the one group that was largely unaffected, though, were the Jews. They escaped the bubonic plague. And why? Because their dietary and their hygienic laws prohibited the deadly diseases from spreading through their community. It went back to the benefit they had received by being under the scriptures. Verse 3, For what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Now, now again, Paul is anticipating arguments that would be posed by the Jews. And here's another argument that Paul anticipates. If a man is saved via God's faithfulness, not his own, then what of those who aren't saved? Does that mean that God has proven unfaithful? 
That's what he's anticipating. He answers this hypothetical question. Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. This is a very contemporary argument here. On occasion, someone will come to me and they'll complain. They'll say, Pastor Sandy, I'm struggling with sin, but God refuses to deliver me. You ever heard that? God refuses to work in my life. He refuses to deliver me. I really want God's help, but it's just not working for me. You ever heard that? Christianity doesn't work for me. And whenever I hear a complaint like that, I have a choice to make. You see, God promises to do his part, but you also have a part. So if it's not happening in your life, then who's the one that's dropping the ball? And I choose you. (laughs) Either you're a liar or God's a liar. And quite frankly, I'm siding with God, not you. As Paul put it, let God be true, but every man a liar. You might need to take another look at you. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what should we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? I speak as a man. Again, Paul will do this at times. He'll use silly arguments to answer the questions of silly men. And here's an example. When a man sins, God judges righteously. So some smart aleck might ask, well, then why shouldn't we sin more and more? If our sin puts God's righteousness on display, then don't we do God a favor by sinning? I mean, that's the silly, stupid argument that he's making to deal with silly, stupid men. Paul answers it, certainly not. For then how will God judge the world? For if the truth of God has increased through my lie to his glory, why am I also still judged as a sinner? And why not say, let us do evil that good may come, as we are slanderously reported and as some affirm that we say, their condemnation is just. Now, even though God displays his glory and righteousness in the judgment of our sin, you and I are still responsible for the deeds we've done. Nobody can say, let us do evil, that good may come. He says, what then? Are we better than they? Not at all. In fact, Paul was just as accountable before God as the next guy. He says, for we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are still under sin. In other words, everybody's accountable to God. That's what he's saying. This has been his point for three chapters now. The heathen. Then the hypocrite, then the Hebrew, Jews and Gentiles, all sinners are deserving of God's wrath. You know, if we were really honest with our kids in Sunday school, we'd teach them a second stanza to the the familiar song, red and yellow, black and white. We're all sinners in his sight. It's true. We are all under sin. This phrase, under sin, the Greek expression, hupo harmatia, It means under the power or the sway or the domination of sin. And this is man's problem. It's not just that we've sinned, that we've slipped up in sin. But it's that we're controlled by sin. We're mastered by sin. Outside Christ, sin is our basic instinct. 
And so he elaborates on this. Verse 10, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. Of the 100 billion humans who've walked this planet since the beginning of time, there's only been one righteous person in God's eyes. His name was Jesus. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks after God. Did you hear about Ringo the Duck? He made big headlines in Toronto, Canada. He lived in the city park. But one day, Ringo, he poked his bill through the pull tab off of a Coca-Cola can. And with his bill stuck shut, he had no way to eat. The poor duck was on the verge of starvation. An enormous rescue mission was launched. Park officials tried to lure Ringo with food. They hired a champion duck caller. But Ringo mistook all their attempts to help him as threats. He ran from the very people who wanted to save him. And this has been man's reaction to God. No one seeks God. No one understands. God loves us. He cares for us. He sees that we're starving to death and he wants to help us. But we keep trying to avoid him. We're told, they have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. The Greek word translated unprofitable was used to describe spoiled milk. God looks at the combined efforts of all humanity and he says, we stink. There is none who does good, no, not one. There is none, there is none, there is none who does good. Paul shoots us all down with a nun gun right there. There's none. We're all in the same camp. Verse 13 describes us all. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. Ever told a lie? The poison of asp is under their lips. Ever gossiped? Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Notice Paul begins with your mouth. He highlights the venom that you can release with your tongue, and then he ends up with your feet. In other words, he's saying you're sinful from head to toe. Verse 16, destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And there you have it, case closed. God has rendered a guilty verdict on all humanity. Once there was a man, he was strolling down the street, he was carrying his Bible in this leather case. When some of the kids thought that it was a camera bag that he was toting over his shoulder. And they asked if he'd take, them, take their picture. They were surprised. The man said he already had their picture. They wanted to see it. So he opened up his case and he pulled out his Bible. He told them, he said, hey, this is your picture. And then he read to them Romans chapter 3, 9 through 18. The man went on to share the gospel. This is what you look like. But God loves you and he wants to save you. And that's what Paul does now. He's shown us our picture. And it stinks. It's bleak. But now he explains to us what God has done for us. He begins to explain God's salvation for man. Verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, 
that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Now, the Jews made the mistake of thinking that they could be made right with God by keeping the law of Moses. You know, people today adopt the same erroneous assumption. They think that God's favor is something that they can earn or that they can work up. Not so. Paul says the law was never intended to save, but to show. You see, the purpose of the law was not to make us righteous. It was to show us our sin. The proud Jews, they they kept the law and they boasted in their piety. But the law was intended to shut them up. You know, like most teenagers, my brother and I, we, we thought we knew it all. And every night at dinner, we'd stir up some kind of an argument, usually over a slice of trivia along the lines of, what's the capital of Panama? And I'd have an opinion, and of course my brother would have an opinion, and my dad, he would have his opinion too. But after dinner, we'd always settle it. My parents, they invested in a set of world book encyclopedias. You remember world book encyclopedias? And those world book encyclopedias became the arbitrator of every argument in the Adams house. Every debate was finally settled after dinner by the world book. And this was the purpose of the law of Moses. It was the referee. It decided right from wrong. The law of Moses called you safe or out. The law became the muzzle. You see, it silenced every claim of self-righteousness. After living under the law, it was evident you didn't measure up. You fell short. You see, think of the law as an x-ray. An x-ray does nothing to heal the bone. It only detects if the bone is broken. And likewise, the law, it didn't heal or save. It only detected the major fracture in man's relationship with God pointed out our need. Reminds me of the pastor who told his congregation, he says, there's only been one perfect man in the world, and his name was Jesus. A man in the back of the room, he started waving his hand. Well, the pastor tried to ignore him. Before long, you know, he was, he was almost getting out of his seat. So finally, the pastor, he, he turned to him and he asked him, he said, okay, please don't tell me you think you're perfect. The man said, no, but I know someone who is. Who's that? The pastor asked. The fellow replied, my wife's first husband. Well, the truth is, is that not one of us is perfect. No one's perfect. Look down at verse 23. Paul says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. For everyone has. All have. You know, the Hawaiian Islands, they're roughly 2,000 miles from Los Angeles. But suppose you and I and the world record long jump holder Mike Powell all decided to jump from L.A. to Honolulu. We let Mike jump first. Man, he soars. He soars 30 feet off the shore into the ocean. 30 feet. Wow, incredible jump. You jump next. You jump 10 feet. Respectable jump. I jump last. I clear three feet. I just ate some pizza. 
Well, Mike did better than you. You did better than me. But in light of 2,000 miles, I mean, none of us were even close, were we? So what if you're better than me? You know, what's the big deal? That's not saying much. The question is, how do we stack up with God? And here's Paul's answer, up against God. We all fall miserably short. Or as another translation puts it, we have all come in last. In the world rankings of righteousness, everyone but Jesus is tied for dead last. Everyone. Verse 21. And this is beautiful. This is a beautiful verse. But... It's hopeless, you know, we're, we're all condemned. But, what a wonderful word, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. Being witnessed by the law and the prophets. It's right there in the book, he says. It's in the Bible. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now here we are introduced to something marvelous and to something mind-boggling. A righteousness that is apart from the law. A right standing with God that you can achieve apart from the law and your performance and your conformity to rules. A righteousness apart from the law. As I said earlier, God has struck a deal with our defense attorney, our advocate. His name is Jesus. There is a way to settle out of court. Oh, you don't want to go to trial with this much evidence stacked up against you. Chapter 3 alone is enough to bury you. But God has placed a plea bargain on the table. It's called the gospel. You aren't good enough to fabricate your own righteousness But here's the good news. There is a righteousness that's attainable apart from the law. It has nothing to do with your performance or your goodness or your good works. It's a gift initiated by grace, paid for by Jesus, received now by faith. Paul explains it in verse 24. Being justified freely by His grace... Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. I love this word justified. You know what it means. Just as if I'd never sinned. That's justified. Even though you're guilty. You're guilty as sin, man. God treats you as if you're innocent. He treats you just as if you'd never sinned. In 1986, the U.S. Congress enacted a law that requires hospitals and ambulances to treat an emergency patient as if he had the wherewithal to pay even if he doesn't. Well, in essence, this is what the Bible means by the term justification. God doesn't ignore the fact that you're bankrupt spiritually. No, He sees your sin. He knows you can't afford treatment. Yet that doesn't stop God from administering His life-giving salvation. For he justifies us freely, literally, without a cause. Even though he knows we're bankrupt, he treats us as if we got money in the bank. As if we can pay for it all. Because we can through Jesus Christ. We have a righteousness apart from the law. 
And we also have the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, Paul says. This idea behind the word redemption came from the slave markets. When a man purchased a slave in order to set him free, he was redeemed. His debts were paid in full. He was now free. And you and I are free from our past sins to start a new life in Christ. Well, God justifies us freely. He redeems us in Christ, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness. Now, if you trace this word propitiation back to its Hebrew origin, you would find that it referred to the mercy seat. That was the gold lid that sat on top of the Ark of the Covenant. You remember the ark was the box that rested in the Holy of Holies. It was God's Old Testament throne on earth. Inside the ark were the two tablets, the Law of Moses, the Ten Commandments, the Law. Over the ark, hovering over the ark, rested the Shekinah glory, the glory of God. So here was the the question. How can man now come to God's throne He's broken the law. He's fallen short of the glory. You would think that the throne of God would be off limits to mortal man, to sinful man. And it would be if God had not put a lid on the law. There was a lid that set over the Ark of the Covenant. It was solid gold. And it was blood-stained because it was the place where the priest would go in and he would sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice. He would sprinkle it on that lid on the mercy seat. A blood-stained mercy seat became the meeting place between God and man. It was there that our debt was paid. It was there that atonement was made. You see, at the very place that cried out for judgment, where law and glory met, at the very place, God extended mercy through the sacrifice. This word propitiation, it means a place of mercy. And today, Jesus has become our mercy seat. Where in the world, where in the universe can you find mercy? God's mercy. There's only one place. It's at the mercy seat. It's at Jesus Christ. At the very place our sin was judged. Where was that? On the cross. God now applies the blood and he extends his mercy. In essence, Jesus put a lid on the law. He fulfills God's glory and he extends mercy all through his son, Jesus. And I marvel at what Paul says next. He says, because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time His righteousness. Over the years, God's righteousness cried out for sin to be judged, but God waited. He passed over sin until the day when His Son came and took our sin on His shoulders and paid its price. Today, Jesus is our propitiation. He is the only mercy spot on earth. God God waited. He passed over sin. Why? Because he knew that his son would come and his son would bear the burden. He would bear the brunt of our sin. And today Jesus has become our propitiation. 
And all this has happened so that God might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And I love this phrase, just and the justifier. You see, God loves you. But God can't just let you off scot-free. I mean, God can't bend the rules. The judge can't fudge. God said the wages of sin is death. Death is required if you commit a sin. This is why Jesus died. He had to die to pacify God's justice, but he also died to satisfy God's mercy. God loves you, but the penalty has to be paid. Did you know the cross enabled God to save face and save us at the same time? Jesus died both to produce your salvation, but also God's vindication. He makes God both just, sins punished, and the justifier. You've received mercy. Verse 27, where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. The legalist boasts. He's tried to earn his way to God. He sees salvation as his own achievement. But justification by faith nullifies our pride. How can we be haughty when Jesus paid it all? That we've added nothing to it. He says, or is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also, since there is one God who justifies the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. In other words, all men are saved the exact same way, by grace, through faith. That's why there's no more room for pride or prejudice on the part of man. Jew and Gentile alike come to God through Jesus. Finally, verse 31. Do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. I love how Max Licato renders this verse. He writes, faith causes us to be what the law truly wants. You see, we've been given grace, but we are also driven by that grace. Grace is what fuels our engine. When you understand how much God loves you, you'll want to love him in return. You'll want to serve him. You'll want to live a life that pleases him. I I can testify personally. I have experienced far greater purity and holiness in my life by walking in grace than I ever achieved through my own grit and through my own discipline. Willpower is no match for God's power. The key to the abundant life is faith in the Spirit of God. It's faith in God's grace. It's faith in the work of Jesus, not our own. And that's where we'll we'll end tonight. Next week, I encourage you to read chapters 4 and 5 before you come.